0: Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica, and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, I would like to welcome Gennaro Fittipaldi, Principal at Fittipaldi Injury Lawyers. Gennaro and I are going to discuss Victorian Workers' Compensation Scheme, WorkSafe Victoria. He's going to help us understand the purpose of the scheme entitlements when he would go to a medico-legal for an opinion and how he selects his experts and his insights into working with a defendant firm and then starting his own firm representing plaintiffs so let me introduce him he has over 15 years experience working as a plaintiff and defendant lawyer in work cover litigation After working as an in-house lawyer at WorkSafe Victoria, he joined Minta, Minta Allison Lawyers, a firm on the WorkSafe Legal Panel. He started his own business in 2016, representing injured workers. His current practice is predominantly workers' compensation with both serious physical and psychological injuries. Prior to entering law, Gennaro worked as an investigator in the fraud unit at WorkSafe Victoria for over 10 years, and up until July 2020, he was on the board of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, where he was humbled by the level of commitment shown by the community by first responders. What a journey. Gennaro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you,
1: Jess. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure having you on. Now, my first question actually is, um, in your intro, you mentioned that you went from a work safe, defendant-based law Mm -hmm. firm, and then to representing and starting your own firm representing Mm -hmm. plaintiffs. Why the Mm -hmm. change?
1: Um, Well, um, it's not an exciting reason, but um, uh, primarily it was just an opportunity that was offered to me. um, and. Um, for quite some time, I'd always felt like a bit of a, a square peg in a round hole working at a big commercial firm. So um, it wasn't until I actually made the transition and um, realised um, how rewarding and fulfilling it is, um, and um, I've just I just haven't looked back ever since. It's just uh, it's an amazing experience to um, uh, to help probably you know some of the most vulnerable people in our community.
0: Mm. Well, we'll definitely um, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later or maybe some of the things that you've done differently in the different sort of sides when you're at defendant versus plaintiff mm-hmm. or representing the plaintiff. But let's mm-hmm. start with the workers' compensation scheme. What is it? Yeah. What's the purpose of it? Tell us.
1: Well, um, the, compensa- the Victorian workers' compensation scheme started in September of 1985. And the legislation at the time introduced a compulsory work cover insurance, which meant all employers which had a payroll of uh, in excess of $7,500 per year or employers that employed apprentices or trainees um, had to take out this policy of insurance through work, through work cover. Um, one of the main objectives of the scheme, um, and was and still remains, is that um, there's a real emphasis and focus on trying to get injured workers back to uh, back to work mm. uh, very early in the piece, and preferably with their compensable employees. Um The scheme comprises of a number of stakeholders, which been, you know, often it makes it quite complicated and complex for injured workers. But firstly and most importantly, there's Worksafe Victoria. Um, and they're, they're the regulator of the scheme. Mm. As part of their, their role, they've appointed uh, what are called authorised agents, and they're, they're predominantly insurance companies, so people like CGU, Allianz, and, 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 et cetera, to, to perform um, the claims administration function, which is, which is the day-in, day-out stuff that's done in relation to managing claims. The agents are responsible for determining initial and ongoing eligibility, Mm-hmm. Um, so they play a pretty big role in the scheme. I mean, um, you know, they make the decisions at the start of the claim as to whether entitlement should be paid, and then during during the the length and the age of the claim, um, it's continuously being assessed. Um, and if they determine that there's some grounds to stop payments or to not provide payments at all, then they'll issue those notices. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and 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 in essence, um, that's the commencement of a dispute. So, employers, once they register for these work cover policies insurance, they, they can now select which agent or which insurance company they want to manage the work related claims. In, in the past, they didn't have the option, uh, but now they can. Now they can select which, which insurance company they want to use. Mm-hmm. The, scheme, the scheme also has what's called self insured employers. Um, and what that means is there's certain employers within Victoria that uh, WorkSafe has given permission to to manage their own claims. Uh, that is, they can manage them in-house or they can actually engage a third party to, such as another insurance company, to manage the work-related claims on their behalf. Uh, regardless, they still need to uh, comply with the legislation they're still subject to the legislation. Currently, there's probably about 40 employees in Victoria that are considered to be, or that are self-insured, they have self-insured licences.
0: And I'm guessing you'd have uh, to be quite a, a, a big employer to apply for something it, like that.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's more the larger employers that have the capability, the resources, et, et cetera, to, to manage those types of claims because, as I said, at the end of the day, they still need to comply with the legislations and the obligations created by employers. Yeah. The, and then there's also what's called the conciliation service where uh, it hears disputes. So all those decisions that the agents make about entitlements and and ongoing entitlements, you know, um, the conciliation service hears those disputes and they have the power to direct agents to do something. They could uh, direct an agent or insurance company to reinstate or to start weekly payments if they believe there's no arguable case, okay? Um, If both parties, that is uh, the worker and the insurance company, present evidence to show that there's an arguable case, more often than not, the conciliation service will issue a certificate which allows the dispute to proceed to the magistrate's court. And then, you know, it'll be up to the magistrate um, to make a determination on the validity of the claim.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, that's just a bit of a snapshot of, of some of the major stakeholders in the scheme. Um, and just in that of itself, um, Um, It can be quite complex, quite technical, um, and it could be a little bit daunting and overwhelming for someone who's suffered a pretty, you know, serious injuries um, and, um, you know, they're questioning a lot of things and sometimes they just don't, don't know which way to turn
0: Yeah, and I'm guessing that's when they would come to someone like you because they would need to understand when they can get compensation and what compensation they can maybe claim. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, often we'll tell them um, what the, the, the next stages and the next process is that they need to, to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll tell them that often I explain the scheme in two parts. Um, firstly, I tell them that there's uh, one part of the scheme which is called the, the no fault uh, section. Um, and that means there's no requirement for someone to be at fault in order to access entitlements. It's It's beneficial legislation, which means it needs to be interpreted in favour of the worker. Um, The only thing they do need to show to establish an entitlement is that they've sustained an injury in the course of their employment, and that injury prevents them from working. Um, If they can satisfy those two or three elements, then um, they will be entitled to such things as loss of wages. Um, So normally it's at 95% for the first 13 weeks, and then 80% 80% thereafter to uh, a total of 130 weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they can also claim reasonable medical and like expenses. And medical and like services is pretty broad. And it's actually, there's a there's a, a list that's contained within the legislation as to what constitutes, you know, medical and like services or expenses. And often, you know, my clients think it's a case of, okay, I'm allowed to get treatment, I'm allowed to get medication. Mm. Um, but they don't realise sometimes, in, you know, on the odd occasion it might also involve some um, pretty major modifications to their homes or even to their vehicles, motor vehicles, depending on the, the type of injury and the severity of it. So what I say to my clients is that you know, you if, if you've established an entitlement and you receive a weekly payments, then you should you know you should think broadly about what other services you may require, and if it's. Something which is endorsed by your GP, mm. um, there's a pretty good chance it might also fit within the, the definition of the services and, and and be funded to a degree by by the agents and the insurers. So, you know, we often find that they're, they're, they're not surprisingly unaware of those things. And there's also impairment claims, uh, permanent impairment claims, which uh, affords them you know a small lump sum of compensation should they receive, should they reach a uh, a threshold of permanent impairment rating. Yeah. Um, And that's some of the more common entitlements they'll receive through the no-fault section. And then the other part of the scheme is what's called the serious injury common law section. And here you must show that you've sustained a serious physical or psychological injury and that the injury was caused in negligent, negligent circumstances. If you can satisfy both those things, then injured workers are entitled to what's called damages. And damages is lump sum compensation for pain and suffering and loss of wages into the future. It's a much more involved and complex claim, this part of the scheme. And often it takes many years before um, injured workers and claims are, are ready to proceed down this path. Um, most of the time it's due because the injury takes so long to stabilise mm. Um, or after a period of time there might be a sequelae in as well that we need to take into account and see whether we can bring within the claim as well. So, you know, what I say to my clients is in the event you're going to go down this path, it's not something that's going to be, you know, this isn't a three to six-month uh, process here. It, 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 you and I <laughs> will be speaking for the next three to four years about your claim, mm. um, and we just we both need to work together to get to that point. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, um, it, it, it's part of the scheme um, and you know, um, those entitlements are available to every uh, Victorian that's injured in the workplace.
0: Yeah, and when you say the the serious injury, what do you have to, is there something that you, the, the type of injury or the severity of the injury that you'd have to reach? Is it a threshold or what, yeah. how do you determine whether it's a serious injury?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it, the, the court and the legislation um, require us, even though it talks about a serious physical or psychological injury, um, it has to be a, a permanent, uh, serious um, physical impairment, or for a psychological injury, it has to be a severe mental disorder. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't actually place a real focus on the diagnosis. What, what the test and the courts require us to do is what are the consequences that flow from the impairment? Um, so, So, for example, someone who sustained a significant back injury um, and has a young family, one of the consequences might be that he can no longer uh, pick up his children or uh, attend to the garden or the basic chores around the home. Um, And due to the the medication that he's on, his sleep has also been severely affected. Um, And a court would consider those consequences to be serious, the consequence Mm. of that impairment to be serious. And then, obviously, um, the inability to work and earn at least 60% of your pre-injury average weekly earnings, um, putting it simply, um, is also a a, a serious consequence. Um, A court would interpret that to be a serious consequence. Yes. So there's a a number of things that that have to be taken into account, but um, certainly um, a classic example is, uh, you know, a client that's had a, a fall from heights and severely injured his wrist and forearm, um, and used to love playing the guitar prior to the injury. So, you know, that that's one of the most obvious um, consequences, um, and I'm, I'm pretty confident the court would interpret that as being serious.
0: Yeah. So, when when would you get the the medico legals involved for an opinion? Is that more with the serious injury claims?
1: Um, Well, that's that's a good question, but I I guess you probably get them involved at the beginning, at the end, and and also in between, (laughs) to to some degree. I mean, there's no no hard and fast rule, but but, but certainly, you know, if we have pending litigation, um, if we've issued proceedings in court, it's definitely part of trial preparation. That is definitely when we go to seek medical legal opinion, when we're ready to go to court. On occasion, we may also seek an opinion prior to issued proceedings because you know you have to remember we have a duty to the courts to ensure that there's um, a proper basis for the litigation. We can't just go issuing it without you know, satisfying ourselves that there's a proper basis.
0: Mm-hmm. So on, on,
1: on the odd occasion, depending on the circumstances, we may seek some opinions prior to issued proceedings. In terms of the serious injuries, um, you've got to remember by the time you get to a serious injury stage, there might already be four or five years worth of medical. Uh, on, on hand, uh, but you, you know it might be the case that there's some issue you've identified which probably needs to be rectified as part of the serious injury application. So you, you, you might obtain another opinion at that stage as well. Yeah. Um, so, so there's no, I guess there's, there's, there's no definitive answer as to when you go for medical, uh, medical legal opinion, but definitely um, as part of your trial preparation for sure.
0: Yeah. And when you do decide to go down the path of obtaining a medico-legal, how do you select the experts that you're going to send your client to?
1: Yeah, well, there's probably a number of factors that we take into account. Firstly, we, we you know, obviously we select an examiner that's relevant, that has the relevant expertise. So, for example, we uh, we For for a knee injury, we'd select an orthopaedic surgeon who specialises with with knee injuries or knee surgery and so forth. We also take into account availability. So some examiners are are quite popular and are booked for months.
0: Yeah. Um, I know whenever you sort of try to get into a specialist, (laughs) it sometimes takes a little while.
1: Yeah. Well, you'd see it firsthand, yes. Yeah. Um, But so, so, you know, sometimes depending on their availability, you might just not be able to get the person that you want. Um, but we're also take into account their availability for court if they're going to be required. So, um, you know, if it's a case that the trial is listed for, you know, in 12 months' time, but they've got a holiday booked and they're just not going to be around, well, um, then that probably doesn't suit our client's either because once something's listed, we prefer to get it done rather than having it adjourned. So that there, there's some of the things. The other thing that... We also take into account is their, their ability to give evidence, you know, under cross examination, mm. and um, unfortunately, it's just something that you, you need to take into account, and, and the, the individual solicitor um, needs to make a call about about that. Um, and often, it's just about it's about reading cases um, and um, judgments that talk about which doctors attended, which doctors gave evidence, which doctor's evidence was. Was accepted, which which which, which wasn't, um, and and often you just build up a little, you know, individual practitioners build up a, some intel on on particular practitioners and so forth, um, and, and I, I suspect that happens both in defendant and in plaintiff land, and and then obviously, you know, um, it's also through discussions with barristers, um, you know, they get to see it firsthand and so forth. Um, that's another factor. Yeah, um, and then yeah un- unfortunately it just it's just it's just part of the industry it has it, it, it forms part of it another factor we take into account is, is our clients feedback on the quality of the examination um, we, we often you know we often get phone calls as, as a bit of a follow-up just to let us know how they went how they found it and so forth and 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 you know we, we, we take that on board uh, and once again we I guess we put it in our as part of our internal intel as well for the future for future occurrences. And, you know, sometimes they might comment on this, I guess, their bedside, bedside manner and so forth and mm. uh, how long the exam went for and what questions were asked. So we, we kind of, we take that all out on board as well.
0: Yeah. Do um, you have any examples of maybe a, a, an appointment that hasn't gone so well? Yeah, well,
1: uh, we, I, um, there's a, a physical exam. Uh, where my client said it was a, a bit strange. I felt it was I was only in there for 20 minutes, um, and the, the the report came back and it just read that it was very rushed. Um, the the opinions in relation to the questions we asked were, were very vague, mm. um, and it just kind of went round in circles and circles. And I wasn't surprised after the conversation I had with my client. Um, as to the manner in which that report read. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, and then there's other, there's other examples in terms of psychiatric examinations. You know, often um, they say that they just weren't given the opportunity to speak. Um, and I, I understand that um, the, the, the examiner's trying to control the examinations and, and they're all working to a time frame. But, you know, these, these people that have severe psychiatric conditions one of their, their concerns is they feel as though they're not being heard or no-one's listening to them. So to turn up to an examination and be cut short um, sometimes, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know whether it does any harm or, or they certainly walk away, walk, walk away feeling um, pretty flat.
0: Yeah. So when you're preparing the experts for the appointment, I'm, I'm guessing you always provide a letter of instruction with some questions and all that sort of thing. Have, have you yeah. found a difference in how you brief experts when you were, say, working for Minter Allison, and WorkSafe than now that you've got your own firm representing plaintiffs?
1: It, it, it's not, there's not a hell of a lot of difference. Um, I, 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 must, I must say that I, I think the letter of instruction to the is, is crucial because yeah. um, and, and I don't think it should be um, underestimated because it, it really should help examiners to focus on the issues in dispute. You know, especially with doing plaintiff work now, my, my letters of instruction or our letters of instruction, um, it, it's critical that the examiner has uh, up-to-date treaters reports. Um, because I think if we expect them to provide an opinion that could potentially be challenged in court um, and put themselves in that position, then we, we have to give them the right information from the start so they mm. can, you know, they're in the best position to provide the most accurate advice and opinion. Um, but in terms of um, the difference between letters of instructions between plaintiff and defendant led, there's no real difference. but on... on some occasions depending on the circumstances of the claim and the issues that are in dispute, there'll be times when the narrative needs to be broader, the the background needs to be a bit more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Um, the letter needs to be, uh, needs to reference um, to particular bits of evidence such as clinical notes which are crucial or radiological investigations. Um, It needs to reference those things and then needs to seek an opinion bits of evidence. Um, and, and, I've, and I've done that both in plaintiff and defendant land. So, um, so there's, there's, there's not a vast difference in, in the manner in which you prepare your letters of instructions um, other than to say that you know it really depends on the circumstance and the claim and the issues in dispute. But you know, I, I don't think it should be underestimated that the letters of instructions are, are crucial in my opinion. Um, there's a majority of uh, opinion out there that questions whether examiners actually read uh, everything that we send them. I like to think that they do, um, and I and I like to think that it, you know I encourage my staff that it's important that the letters of advice are, are clear and comprehensive.
0: Yeah. Well, is is there maybe one last thing that you'd like to share, Gennaro, to say the medical experts that are listening today? Any any tips, any advice that you'd give them based on your experience with experts in the past? I, I think I think
1: um really um, you know some of these most of these injured workers are, are fragile and, and a little bit vulnerable and overwhelmed and, and they're already you know frightened about their futures and so forth and they don't they don't really know what to expect when they turn up to an expectation so I think know, just just try a little bit be a little bit patient with them um, and um, and just um, try and make the communications pretty clear and, and open and 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 if there is something that uh, we've as a plaintiff, lawyers um, haven't provided, or you think you needed some sort of further, they think they need some further clarification. By all means, just, just contact us. We're, we're there to pick up the phone uh, and help in 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 any way we can. So, if we can provide any further information or clarity on some issues before providing an opinion, uh, by all means, contact us. Now we'll, we'll, we'll keep detailed notes of the conversation we have to for court purposes, mm. um, but we prefer that. potentially the the client proceeding and and looking to an adjournment or or seeking a supplementary report for example
0: yeah well thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it you've given some really great insights and hopefully the listeners will get a lot out of it
1: no you're welcome thanks for having me pleasure.
0: thanks Janaro. have a good night thanks
1: you too bye-bye
0: bye